Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, July 11th, 2017. program looking at the notes here you know i think it's been a while since we've done a beth moore update a hillsong update yeah it's just gonna be great thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris rosebro i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, yeah, that's right, and compare, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to actually open up God's Word to compare and contrast What the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, it's weird how that works, but that's oftentimes the way it works. And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine being put forward by so many of the most popular folks is far from sound, far from biblical. In fact, it's just getting, like, ridiculous, because I don't even think they're trying anymore. (laughs) I mean, that's, I mean, they've totally given up on actually trying to do any biblical teaching. Although, you know, somebody like Beth Moore, she really tries hard to make it look like it, but there's so many others, it's like no effort at all. They just make up stuff, you know, throw in an out-of-context sentence or verse from the Bible and and run along on their merry way. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. It has been a while since we've done a Beth Moore update. Uh, We're going to change that today. We're going to begin with a uh, Beth Moore update. And apparently she uh, recently preached at Preston Wood Baptist Church. At least she's preaching from a pulpit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to head over to Preston Wood Baptist Church and listen to a portion of her message titled, um, Jesus Because Life is Complicated. Jesus Because Life is Complicated. And we're going to hear a version of uh, the uh, Dream Destiny thingy uh, doctrine. And, uh, you know, you're created for a purpose. Now, at the Australia Conference, Australia PCR Conference, one of my lectures was titled, God did not create you with a purpose. I know it sounds just like 
Crazy, I know. Um, my goal is to be able to play that on uh, Friday's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So I would say mentally kind of hold on to something here. Uh, and uh, you're going to get a full teaching uh, from the Australia conference on God did not create you for a purpose. I know, it just again, it sounds nuts, but that's what we're going to be doing on Friday's episode, and you just need to hear it. Um, the, the, once we're done with Beth Moore, though, today, we're going to do a Hillsong update, and uh, we're going to listen to a portion of Brian Houston's message titled Raising Kings, and we're going to note uh, the Bible-twisting technique that both are engaging in here. It's a uh, it's a derivative of Narcissus, but I mean, it's almost like ignoring what the text actually says or means or any of that stuff. But I think Beth Moore does a better job, a finer job of actually covering her tracks than Brian Houston does. Yeah. And then uh, somewhere in there, we'll take a break. And uh, then we're going to uh, listen to a portion of a sermon delivered by Holly Furtick, the uh, wife of Stephen Furtick. And she's turned into quite the Narsajit. Uh Yeah, and, and she's also preaching. Um, strange, isn't it? Yeah, because God's Word actually forbids women from doing what it is that she's going to be doing. And so uh, we're going to listen to a portion of her sermon titled, Ju- I'm Just a Girl. I'm Just a Girl. And, uh, and then in hour number two, we're going to head down to Elevate Life Church, and we're going to listen to the son of Keith Craft, uh, Joshua Craft, as he preaches the first sermon in their summer series titled Staycation. And um, it's going to be all about the life of Walt Disney. Yeah, and I don't know how else to say it. In fact, the sermon begins with him preaching with Mickey Mouse ears on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a uh, weird thing that happens in evangelicalism nowadays, especially with the mega church pastors or the big mega church complexes, you think of like Hillsong and other places like that. The son of the pastor uh, doesn't even have to go to seminary. He can automatically become a pastor himself, too. Apparently, just being born to the mega church royalty makes him a prince of preachers. And uh, yeah, so it's yeah, kind of weird, fascinating. Weird trend that we see in evangelicalism. So Joshua Kraft, who clearly should not be delivering any sermon anywhere, uh, will be uh, delivering the sermon titled Staycation Part 1. Staycation Part 1, all about Walt Disney. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We have a lot of ground we need to cover. And since we're going to begin with the Beth Moore update, let's do this. Able to narsegeet a biblical passage faster than a hummingbird, having had an espresso mocha at Starbucks with three shots of espresso coffee and seven pumps of chocolate. We're now checking in with Beth Moore as she's preaching at Prestonwood Baptist Church and delivering a message that includes a complete mangling and twisting of God's word from the Gospel of Mark. I assure you, it will be dizzying. All right, so uh, let's head over to uh, Prestonwood Baptist Church as uh, Beth Moore preaches. Mm -hmm. Here we go. 
You may be seated. I want you to turn with me to the gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, if you didn't bring them, that's okay too, because I'm going to read it all to you, but I'm going to speak to you out of Mark 10 and Mark four. And I'm going to tell you why both of them, because I was going to speak to you and still going to do it. I'm going to somehow, I'm asking and trusting God to make a fusion out of this. I was going to speak out of Mark chapter four entirely. And then this morning, my reading, my scripture reading had me in this portion of Mark chapter 10. And I became absolutely fascinated with it. In fact, as he was just really speaking out of it to me uh, during my quiet time this morning, I finally. What, what, what? As he was speaking to me. Yeah. Uh, Beth Moore is one of these folks who claims that. She receives direct revelation. Apparently, that's what qualifies her to deliver a sermon in a Christian church, despite the fact that God's word forbids women from doing what she's doing. To just go ahead and grab my laptop so that I could pull out my Bible software and so I could look it up in some commentaries and check some things. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a blend of both of these portions because I can see a common denominator. And if you don't see the common denominator, that's okay. Then just let it be mixed metaphors and let's have a great time tonight in the scriptures. So Mark 10, I'd like to begin reading at verse 46. Mark 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he, that's Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now, be a visual learner as much as you can. Picture what's happening here. That name Jericho to any of us who have been raised in the scriptures and know anything about the book of Joshua, that is very, very familiar to us because that was a major city, the first city that Joshua and his army were called to conquer. That's where the walls came uh, tumbling down right there as they crossed over that Jordan, about five miles uh, uh, to the west of the Jordan River. So it has so much history as we read it. And 47 says this, and when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, and I want you to pause right there for just a moment. I was looking up in word biblical commentary today when I was checking it this morning and uh, noticing in in some of the commentaries the more scholarly commentaries, uh, they do their own translation of the Greek. So they'll offer their own. And I'm reading you um, out of the ESV tonight, but they offered their own translation. And I just loved it and wrote it in the margin of my Bible because it says, and standing still, Jesus said. Standing still, Jesus said, and I thought, if you just go with me here just a second, I thought about Joshua chapter 10 and the sun standing still over Joshua and his army until that they, until they could have victory over it. And I thought the S-U-N standing still. And then I thought of the S-O-N standing still. And I thought about that, that man, uh, Bartimaeus just sitting on that roadside. Here's that Jesus of Nazareth is close by. And begins crying out and crying out. And Jesus just stops in his tracks. And the son stands still and says, call him. Why did he tell that man? He could have called him. 
call him. No, you who rebuked him, now call him so that he hears you undo what you've done. You who spoke without compassion, now open up your mouth with mercy, call him. Now, although she shouldn't be preaching, the uh, what she's done so far, I'm, I'm not going to take issue with it. All right, uh, she and she's note she's dropped a name here. She has consulted the Word Bible Commentary, and the Word Commentary is great commentary series. Have them myself. Do check on them, and so it's clear she's done some commentary work. Thus far, no qualms, at least how she's handling the text. Although the word association, you know, the sun stood still and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, that's not a big deal. I mean, she's, you know, doing some cross-reference. And basically, you know, what this reminded me of is this, and she thought that was kind of fascinating. That's not the point of the text. But, you know, devotionally speaking, not a bad handling of the text so far. I mean... I mean, we're off to a rip-roaring start. She looks like she's exegeting. She's consulted commentaries. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? And they called him. Called to the blind man saying, I love these three instructions. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. All right. Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. This is where she goes off the rails. Heart, get up. He is calling you. I want you to just repeat that for me. Take heart, get up. He is calling you. Do it one more time. Take heart, get up. He is calling you. That's what you're here for tonight. You just didn't know it. Uh, 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 what? You're here to take heart. And I wonder how many of us in this place are here to get up. Uh, oh, uh, oh. Uh. <laughs> Uh, what? Because Jesus is calling you. And what Jesus is calling you for, you were born for. You were born for. You were created for it. Boy, that happened really quick, didn't it? Usually the train wrecks are in slow motion. That one was like at light speed. Wow, she went straight into the wall. Okay, so we got a problem here. She uses the occasion of the words, um, call him, and then, you know, take heart, get up, he's calling you, which is the words that the disciples said to blind Bartimaeus. You, you see, it, it doesn't, you don't get to twist the meaning and somehow say that Jesus is calling me for a dream destiny thingy from that verse. You know, it just doesn't work that way at all uh say they called the blind man saying to him take heart get up he is calling you the story continues by the way throwing off his cloak he sprang up came to jesus you see that was the response so and jesus said to him what do you want me to do for you and the blind man said to him rabbi let me recover my sight and jesus said to him go your way your faith has made you well Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Yeah, so that's the account of blind Bartimaeus, but she's turning this into a purpose-driven text, and uh, I'm 100% positive that the word Bible commentary does not 
take the words, take heart, get up, he's calling you, in order to say that Jesus was uh, referencing our individual purposes, dream destinies, and things of that nature. Yeah. For it. You were destined for it. Until you begin to walk in that thing, whatever it may be. You're thinking, well, I don't see myself ministering inside the church. Do you know what's going to happen if all of us consider that the only place we can live out our calling is under the church roof? Again, this has nothing to do with the good works that God has called us to do. Notice what I said. Totally different than what she said, by the way. Yeah, tune in Friday. God saw us. I want you to think about, if you're like me, in a couple of months, you'll be going up to your attic and you're going to pull out all these, uh, all these strands of Christmas lights that are all rolled up in a ball. Is that how you do it too? All rolled up in a ball. And then I just kind of roll them out and plug them in and I stick them together. And then they go round and round and round my tree. See, that's us. That's us. That's us. We're also, this is the body of Christ. We're supposed to be wound over this whole globe, wound over this whole globe. But what happens is this, we're in a world where we're so counterculture, we get all scared of them. We get all scared of them. It's scary out there. They hate us. What on earth does this have to do with the healing of blind Bartimaeus? Out there. And sometimes we know why. I don't want to really get into that. But sometimes when we just like are all bitter and all hateful and all uh, telling them um, how much God hates them, you have to wonder why they don't want to be like us. It's a mystery, isn't it? But... What happens, we get all scared of them. And so we stay in our little ball and plug ourselves in right under the church roof. Now we got, we got to be plugged into a body. This is how we're equipped for our calling. This, these are our brothers and sisters. We, we, we've got to have. This text is not about our vocations, our vocatio, our callings. But then we're meant then we come together in that little huddle like that so that we can all say to one another, come on now, come on now. I mean, there there are more who are for us than against us. Come on now, we're going to do the thing. But then we go back out there and we're all one big long strand all over the globe like this. We can't just huddle under the church roof. So where are you in? Are you in legal work? Maybe the issue is, is that she had far too much coffee before getting on stage. Um Wow. Um, whoa. Yeah, I, I have no idea what any of this has to do with this tax. In fact, it has like zero, nothing whatsoever. Yeah, consult the word Bible commentary. It says nothing about any of this. <laughs> when the, <laughs> the disciples said, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Uh, yeah, this, I, wow. You're supposed to minister. What would God look like doing your job, pulling out of your driveway? Wearing your clothes, maybe in the medical field. Right, yeah. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea what God would look like wearing my clothes. You know, probably swimming in clothes that are bigger than he is. Um, (sighs) One thing I do know is what you're asking and what you're talking about has nothing. Zip to do with this text where did you learn how to do this stay at home mom in a neighborhood of lost people 
Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever we're called to, if you can't do it in the name of Christ, I say this with, with complete respect. I say this, I mean, I mean it. This text has nothing to do with stay-at-home moms. Every sense of the word, not as a condemnation. But if we can't see doing our job in the name of Jesus, if it's unethical in such a sense that I can't do my job in the name of Jesus, then this is when we start praying for a new job. This is when we want somewhere else because wherever it might be. Yeah, I'm not going to pray for a new job just because you twisted this text from Mark. (laughs) In fact, because you keep doing stuff like this, my job security is pretty good right now. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't even have a name for that. That wasn't even Narsa Jesus. I mean, it was like ignoring, ignore a Jesus. You know, it's just like ignoring the text. Just, you know, read out part of the text. Make it sound like you really know what you're doing because, you you know, oh, I consulted commentaries. And then you're just off into the weeds. What on earth? Anyway, I, I think you get the idea. And uh, I, I think this is the exact same technique that we're going to hear in this next segment. But uh, it, we got to set this up properly. So let's do this. Praise the Lord for all the cash I've got. Praise Him for my Rolls Royce and my yacht. Serving God ain't hard with a credit card. Jesus died so I could make a lot. Praise the Lord, He's made us millionaires. Wave your donations in the air. We've replaced our hymns with ATMs. And soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer. Jesus Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow. Stop the sermon on the mount, he should have had a bank account. Two thousand years with interest, he'd be rolling in the dough. Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD, just forty ninety five plus GST. Hallelujah, Lenny and Mula, solid gold baubles on my Christmas tree. I've got all of heaven's riches, thanks to all you stupid men. Praise the Lord for modern Christianity. Yeah, that's right. Time to head down to Sydney, Australia, and uh, listen to a portion of a sermon titled Raising Kings. Yeah, this is part one of that particular sermon series delivered over at uh, Hillsong, Australia, Sydney uh, campus, that is. Uh, where <clears throat> Brian Houston holds court as the vision casting leader. And uh, we'll note, uh, see if we can pay attention to how he uses or misuses Scripture in this um, message and see what we, if we can make heads or tails of it. So here we go. Here's Brian Houston and Raising Kings. Presence here. Thank you, Lord. We get to consider your wonder. How wonderful, Father. Lord, thank you for every person who gathered Every location, everywhere we gather tonight, all around the land. Father, we thank you, you're with us. The Holy Spirit is here. The presence of God is here. And Lord, we're so grateful for it. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. You guys can be seated. Kings and queens. I'm speaking about kings and queens. I want to talk today about raising up kings. I don't want to start by telling you a story. You want to talk about raising up kings. Where are we taught to do that in Scripture? When we started at church all those years ago, we are a small crowd of people, and a lot of keen people, a lot of young people, a lot of people all fired up. wasn't too long before people were becoming Christians, great things were happening, but we really didn't have what I would call kings or queens. Most of us were just young and starting out in what we were doing. In other words, we didn't have people of significant influence or influences, but there was one man. His name. So a king or a queen is somebody of significant influence. Uh-huh. Where are you finding that in the Bible? Nabi, who came with his wife, Angela, and I didn't know they were there, but other people started to tell me about Nabi and Angela, and he had a fairly significant business roasting coffee and doing such things. And so eventually, I was encouraged by somebody else to start meeting up with Nabi. So a long time ago, over 30 years ago, Nabi and I started meeting once a week to have breakfast. I love it because he puts into me, I put into him. We tell each other what's going on in our world. Sometimes we confide in each other. It's really an awesome time. But the thing about Nabi right from the start was he just stood out for me because he was what I would call the elder in a church or a a board member in a church that every church needs. So I remember one time many years ago, looking at Nabi and what a blessing he was all the way from his generosity through to his incredible big thinking and his big spirit. And I remember thinking, God, bring in more people like Nabi. Clear as anything, I felt the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Uh, uh-huh. You, 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 so what did that feel like exactly? And what did he say when you were feeling him speaking? He said, you have to raise them up. Ah, I see. You. So the Holy Spirit told you, you have to raise up Navis. Navis apparently are kings and queens. Uh-huh. So this is based upon a direct revelation that you think you felt from the Holy Spirit. Okay. But they're not going to come in the door. You have to raise them up. And so from that time till this, our church has had a revelation of the importance of putting into people, raising people up, believing in people, expecting God's very best for people. And so it's... Yeah, it sounds so pious and all, you know, you know, believing in people, investing in people and stuff like that. And it's all, you know, because God spoke directly to Brian Houston. Hmm. Yeah, we're going to pause our uh, Hillsong update right there, and we're going to uh, take a break and pay some bills, and we'll continue on the other side of the break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue with Brian Houston on raising up kings and queens, and then we'll hear from Holly Furtick. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> large non-fat decaf mocha with no whipped cream two pumps of chocolate and diet soy milk for tiffany oh actually it's just tiff oh uh sorry uh, tiff then like thank you so much i've never made a drink quite like this before i can't even imagine what you call it my friends call it like the why bother but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it (laughs) Nice talking with you. Adios. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street... It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. Jeff said, wrecked him, wrecked him. You practically killed him. (laughs) Oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right, use this. A little bit there. And, uh, there. That seems to have gotten most, most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So, first of all, I'm like a sinner, and I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came, and he got on the cross, and everybody's sins were forgiven, and we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all shut up and said that we loved him, 
and then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven. But instead, these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you. You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt? And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that a lot of Bible preachers aren't actually preaching the Bible. In fact, they're ignoring it even when they read it. It's weird. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and our rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a Great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Just a reminder, the uh, uh, 2017 USA PCR Conference, Contend, that's the theme, Contend is Friday, August 11th and Saturday, August 12th up here in the frozen north. 
Yeah, it won't be frozen then, but you kind of get the idea. And uh, it's going to be at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota, which is about 20, 25 minutes north of here, uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. All the details are on our website, registration fees. The speakers will be myself, Matthew Garnett, Stephen Kozar, Amy Spreeman. It's going to be a fantastic time. Recommend uh, you, you get on it and get registered now so that you can attend and uh, you know all the details as far as where to stay and things like that. Uh, the uh, registration fee includes, you know, uh, our a T-shirt for, specifically and only for the conference this year. Also, uh, free conference audio. This audio will uh, the, from this conference will be made available for sale after it. It won't be like the uh, Australia conference, which is free. But, uh, you know, all of the details are up at fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the conferences link up above, and you can see 2017 PCR USA Conference. Look forward to seeing y'all there. This would be a good time for you to register. All right, let's uh, head back to Hillsong, and uh, we're listening to Brian Houston talking about raising kings and queens, and uh, apparently this is based upon a direct revelation given to him by God when the Holy Spirit spoke something to his heart years ago regarding a friend of his named Navi. Okay, we continue. The fruit of it. And so I mentioned kings such as the ones that came from Abraham. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, about Abraham, that the Lord said to him, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. That's what it was. Yeah, okay, so that was weird. Uh, he quoted Genesis 17, verse 6, out of context. And, uh, wow, is that a problem? And uh, with no reference to what's going on here. Here's what it says. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context. Here's what it says. When Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now notice I was emphasizing the word you, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Yeah, who do you think uh, God was talking to? Yeah, Abraham. Yeah, he just changed his name. And it says, and then the, it continues, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Now, this is the confirming, if you would, of the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, thus far, you know, Abraham, 99 years old, he's been told by God that uh, that he will be, you know, from him will come many nations. And thus far... No, no, he has no children. 
at least n- not from Sarah. Mm-hmm. So we got a problem, and that is, it's like, well, how's this going to be fulfilled? And that's going to be, you know, shortly after this is when Sarah will conceive Isaac. But uh, this is not some blanket promise that God is making to you or to me or to Hillsong Church or even your local church that kings will come from you. You ain't the you there. The you there is Abram. And this covenant is really important because the kings coming from Abram, direct descendants of Abraham, will include King David and King Jesus. Yeah, the Abrahamic covenant is all about the promise of the coming Messiah, the one, you know, the descendant, uh, the seed of Abraham who would literally bless, you know, people from all nations. Yeah, by the forgiveness of their sins. But yeah, this is, uh, you know, at its core, the Abrahamic covenant and its promises are alluding to Christ. These are messianic prophecies. So Brian Houston has just quoted. Genesis 17, 6, saying that kings shall come from you, and the you there is Abraham, and he thinks that this has something to do with raising up kings and queens in the church. And my question is, where did he learn to twist Scripture like this? Why is he ignoring who this passage is about and who the you is there in this context? Let me back this up so you can hear him do this again. Here we go. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, about Abraham, that the Lord said to him, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. I'll make nations of you and kings shall come from you. That's what I've always believed for our church. The kings will come from us. Yeah, um, Genesis 17, 6 has nothing to do with Hillsong. People would rise up in all walks of life who literally reigned in whatever it is that God called them to do. For Sarah, in verse 16, it's a similar promise. For Sarah, you can see it there. I will bless Sarah and also give her a son. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nation. Kings of people shall be from her. I have. Yeah, her. Yeah, her and Abraham. This isn't about Hillsong. To believe tonight across every part of our church, that there are people sitting here now, some of you may be young, some not even perhaps at this point, believers in Jesus Christ, people, brand new Christians, people, and it's hard for you to believe where God could take your life. But I think you're in the right place if you want the kind of input, the kind of faith, the kind of belief, the kind of investment where you get the kind of inspiration and encouragement that will cause you to rise up, fulfill your potential, carve out in life all those things that God prepared for you. And so then you come to their grandson, Jacob. And it's... (laughs) Wow. So, uh, yeah, Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant is a prophecy regarding Hillsong. Raising up uh, people of influence uh, within the ranks of Hillsong. Who knew? I, I had no idea. Genesis 35 verse 11. And it says a similar thing about Jacob. It says also, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. 
Yeah, um, Jacob is a direct descendant of Abraham, and it's, you know, (laughs) yeah, Jacob becomes Israel, God changes his name. Um, So, yes, kings actually come from his body. Same kings, by the way, David, Jesus, yeah, um, this is messianic stuff here, and uh, this has nothing to do with Hillsong. To which I think about parents and think about what we're believing for our children, those who come from our body, literally. But I also think about this, we're the body of Christ. The body of Christ is much bigger than us, it's universal. But of course, as a church, we're a body, we're a community and a family. And I absolutely believe that it's the will of God. And some of you are sitting looking at me right now and already God's doing good things in your life. But I believe it's the will of God for kings to come from our body, from this church, from our ministry, in every sphere of life. Uh, Every sphere of life. So Brian Houston, that sounds a lot like the seven mountains mandate to me. Seven spheres, the seven mountains. He's literally believing for kings of the spheres of life to raise up from Hillsong. Yeah, that's not freaky at all, is it? Yeah, and he totally twisted God's word to get to that point. Wow, I don't know what he's doing there, but uh, clearly he's uh, playing on the narcissism of the young people who attend Hillsong and basically filling their heads to let them know that he's believing that some of them uh, who are listening to his voice there at Hillsong said that they are going to be kings and queens and rule in the different spheres that sounds like NAR talk uh, of uh, of life and society. Wow, that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what uh, Genesis 17 or 33 or anything related to the Abraham Covenant is about. That is some really sick twisting of Scripture that we're listening to. Talk about sick twisting of Scripture. Let's uh, set this up here. We're going to do a Holly Furtick update, and since she learned how to twist Scripture from her husband, let's do this. But you twisted up the bar 
prayed, then I heard the real gospel, heard the real gospel, and you're so vain. You'll probably think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? All right, so this uh, past weekend, the wife of Stephen Furtick, Holly Furtick, disobeyed the clear instructions of God's Word and uh, preached a sermon. And in the process, she totally mangled God's Word in a similar way that we just heard Beth Moore doing, that we just heard Brian Houston doing. It's just a mess is the best way I can put it. Uh, the name of the sermon in question is titled, I'm Just a Girl. Uh, I'm Just a Girl. That's the name of the sermon. And uh, there's kind of a long setup for the sermon itself. So uh, let's go ahead and head over to Elevation Church. And uh, let's check in with uh, Holly Furtick as uh, she delivers this message. And we'll see if we can make sense of it along the way, at least biblically. It's going to take a while for her to get to the Bible because, you know, her, like her husband, isn't about, you know, preaching God's word in context and paying attention to actually what it says and what it means. No, they think it's about them. So I think uh, Holly will show her hand here, if you know what I mean. So let's get to it. Here's the I'm Just a Girl sermon. I am so excited about the message that God has given me today. I know that I've said this before. But- so God gave you this message. I just have to challenge it straight up because Scripture actually forbids women to preach in Christ's church. Two passages in particular come to mind, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and uh, 1 Timothy 2. Let's explicitly make this clear. And yet you say that God gave you this message. Yeah, I don't think so. It really can't go without saying every time that I prepare a message for our church, I have so much more respect for our pastor because he gives his all every single week. And I know. Yeah. So here comes the obligatory nod to uh, the vision casting leader, Stephen Furtick. Of us, our lives have been changed because of his willingness to be used by God and to give his all every single week. So I know that I speak for all of us when I say thank you, Pastor Stephen, for the life that you pour into your messages every single week. We thank God for. Yeah, the narcissistic life you pour into all of your messages by evacuating scriptures about who they're actually about, which would be Jesus. Let's pray. And we'll jump into the message that God has for us today. Father, I thank you so much for Elevation Church and that I get to be a part of Elevation. And God, we are surrendering our hearts to you right now. And we're asking you to speak to us. And we're saying, God, if you speak, we'll listen. And so we know that you're going to do that because you always do when we come to church and we open up our hearts. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So when I was a kid, I used to fantasize about what it would be like. You know, sermons are supposed to begin with a biblical text. Yeah, and why are you starting with a life story? To be a grown-up, to drive your own car, to work a job. I mean, how amazing was it going to be to work a job (laughs) and have your own money and no one to tell you what to do? 
because when you work a job, no one tells you what to do. I don't know. It didn't all come together. But in my mind, being a grown-up was going to be the most amazing thing ever. And I specifically remember when I was about 12 years old, I went to the Dade County Fair with my family. And I loved amusement park rides. I especially love this one ride called the Gravitron. Does anybody know? I'm going to describe it to you. All the rides are called different things. But this is that ride that you get you get in and you stand up against the wall and it starts moving in a circle and it's going so fast that you're stuck to the you can't you can't move your head and you can't lift your arm and you're you're stuck to the sides and i wanted to ride this ride so bad and i remember my mom saying she couldn't ride the ride because she would get sick and my dad couldn't ride the ride because he had a bad back and my younger sister was too short and my older sister, she was too cool or whatever. I don't know. So I had to ride the ride by myself. And I had to ride a couple of rides by myself that night. And I vividly remember walking around the fair and thinking, one day I'm going to be old enough to go to the fair alone with my friends. And I'm going to ride all the rides that I want to ride. Okay, well, I'm 37 years old now. And I think that that qualifies me as being a grown-up, right? But for some reason, in my mind, I still struggle with feeling like I'm a grown-up. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, when am I going to start feeling like an adult, like in my head? And so... Come- <laughs> what on earth is this? Um, okay, um, do you have a biblical text to solve this problem? Years ago, I took my kids to Carowinds for the first time, okay? Remember, I loved rides when I was a kid. And if you're a part of our EFAM, you don't know what that is. That's our local amusement park where, incidentally, you can ride a roller coaster over North Carolina and South Carolina at the same time. Okay, so anyway, we're really proud of that. Um, so we get to the park and the first ride that we ride was a kitty ride. And if you've ever been to Carowinds, it's the hot air balloon ride. Okay. And so this ride, it does not have a height requirement. It barely has seatbelts. Okay. You get in this little like bucket that looks like a basket and the door shuts and the thing goes up and everybody goes around in a circle. Well, we got on the ride and about halfway through, I wasn't feeling so great. And when the, I was like, when is this ride going to be over? And when the ride was finally over, um, I, I got off and let's just say I had to sit down. I had to like, as my dad would call it, I had to ride the bench ride. And I had to just sit there and take deep breaths so I could get in control of my stomach. And it was like one of those moments where my mind still felt like I was a kid, but my body was screaming. We're learning a lot about Holly Furtick. A lot about Holly Furtick. We're learning nothing about scripture. Me, you're not a kid anymore. You're getting old. And I know I'm only 37, but still, I, I could just feel my body, but my head wouldn't line up with my body. And I think one of the reasons that I still feel like a kid in my mind is that a lot of times I get trapped into that pattern of comparing myself to other people, you know? When I- right, yeah, that, that's the, the problem right there, yeah.
That's why you feel like a kid. Got it. On Facebook, or I get on Instagram, and I look at other people who are my age or about my age, or I think, I think they're about my age, and I think, wow, you know, she's got it all together. She's done a lot for her age, and she's a great mom, and she works a full-time job, and she really seems confident. I mean, look at all that she has accomplished, and then there's me. And for most of my adult life, I have battled feeling like I'm still just a girl that no matter the fact that I have three children and I'm married to the Stephen Furtick, I mean, the greatest (laughs) preacher of our generation. Yeah, no, really, he's not. Greatest narcissist of our generation, Bible twister, narcissistically so. I mean, I mean, he's great at that. He ain't a great preacher, though. The road to confidence has been a hard road for me. Yeah, so so apparently Christianity is all about uh, you know arriving, you know, at the uh, the destination called confidence. Yeah, because the, the, she's on the road to confidence. Yeah. Been so many days where I feel like maybe God should have picked someone else to be the wife of Stephen Furtick or someone else to be the mom to Elijah, Graham, and Abby. Maybe I'm not the right one for them. Maybe somebody else could raise them better. Maybe God should have picked someone else to be the pastor's wife of Elevation Church, you know? And I've often felt like maybe who I am isn't enough for the jobs that I've been given, because in my head, I still feel like a girl. And how can I ever rise to the task of these positions that I've been given? Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I know your situation may be different from mine, but we all feel at times like, like we're not enough. You know, do you ever think like, when am I going to feel, feel like I am the right mom for these kids or feel like I am the right person for this? What do your feelings have to do with who your kids are? I mean, this is kind of objective stuff here. I mean, you birth them, they're your babies. You know, that's kind of how that works. Nobody else could do it better than me. When am I going to feel like God should use me? When am I going to stop making childish mistakes so that God can use me? Uh, Childish mistakes keep God from using you. I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you talking about sin? Yeah, and you notice the dream destiny thingy doctrine is intimately woven into this weird biographical um, message. I can't call it a sermon. The title of my sermon today is called... Yeah, no, it's not really not a sermon. It's You're doing biography. I'm just a girl. And I want to look at one of the most famous girls in the Bible and probably my favorite Bible character. I want to look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and I want to give you... Three things that you can do when you find yourself in a place where you feel like you're not enough. Okay? Uh, (laughs) What? (laughs) So we're going to look at the story of the birth of Christ. Notice where I put the emphasis. And you're going to talk about Mary and three things we can do when we feel we're not enough. Oh boy. Talk about uh, missing the forest because of a narcissistic tree. So, 
Mary's story starts in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And I want to read that to you. Yeah, Luke is not about Mary. Yeah, no, it isn't. Uh, Luke is about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 begins with these words, inasmuch as many as have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Yeah, Luke is making it clear that all of this is about the amazing story of Jesus. It's it's actually about him, and so the you know from there Luke chapter one verse five begins one of the birth narratives that we find in Scripture, the nativity narrative of how Jesus got here on planet Earth, and it, you know and the fact that Jesus is born of a virgin is actually quite important. Because it's a miraculous birth of the Messiah. This is you're you're putting the emphasis on the totally wrong syllable here, Holly. Oh boy. We continue. You'd think I would have this marked or something. All right. Um the birth of Jesus foretold is the title of, of this section of the Bible, and it starts in Luke. The birth of what? The birth of who? The birth of Jesus. This is about the birth of Christ, the Messiah. Six. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, we know that Mary was just a girl because historically at this time, a girl would be pledged to be married somewhere around the age of 12. Okay, so the angel comes to this girl, this 12 year old girl, and the angel says, uh, verse 28, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Who will be great? He will be great. What will he be called? The son of the most high. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is about the birth of the Messiah, n- n- none other than God in human flesh. Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Whose kingdom? His kingdom. It's all about Jesus. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Here's my first point for you. When you feel like you aren't enough, make sure that you ask the right questions. (laughs) What? This this is absurd. Really? So, (laughs) because Mary was 
inquisitive as to how she was supposed to give birth when she's a virgin. That means when you're feeling like you're not enough, that the reason that's in Scripture is so that you can learn when you're feeling like you're not enough, you need to ask the right questions. No, no, oh man, this is horrifyingly bad. Mary asked, how can this be? Now, this was not a question of doubt. It was simply a question of direction. She said, how can this be since I am still a virgin? And I know that this wasn't a question of doubt because the angel answered her by giving her more details. Now, yeah, he did. But again, how does this then apply that if I'm feeling like I'm not adequate, that I just need to ask the right questions? Just a few verses before, in the same chapter, Luke chapter 1, the same angel, Gabriel, went to a priest whose wife had been barren. And he told the priest that he would be the father of John the Baptist. Now the angel goes into all this great detail about how they're going to raise this child and what they're going to name him. And after all of this instruction that the angel has given the priest, his name was Zechariah, he says, Zechariah says to the angel, how can I be sure? Now, this is the wrong question to ask because the angel, we know because of the angel's response. So don't ask that one if you're feeling inadequate. The angel rebuked him and said that he had unbelief. And then he caused Zachariah to be silent for the next nine months until the baby was born, which personally for me would be absolute torture. Okay? So... We have Mary asking the right question, and we have Zechariah asking the wrong question. Both of them were scared. We know this because the first thing that the angel tells them is, do not be afraid. So it's okay to be scared when you're facing your calling, but you... (laughs) Oh my goodness. So you're going to note here that these, the dream destiny thingy doctrine is in play. And so we're not going to read the text and actually pay attention to what it's saying, who it's pointing to. No, the reason why we have the story of the birth of John the Baptist and the conception and birth of John the Baptist and the conception and birth of Jesus Christ is because Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary, they all are examples of people who found and discovered and received via direct revelation their dream destiny thingy. And and so because they were afraid when they first heard, you know, about their dream destiny, uh, we too, when we realize what our calling dream destiny thingy is, it's okay for us to feel afraid too. But remember that once it shows up, you need to ask the right questions rather than the wrong question because you're going to be afraid and feel inadequate. You know, because, you know, that's how that goes. But don't worry. Just ask the right question then, and that'll help you through those feelings of inadequacy. To have the right response. Their responses were so different. Mary was asking for direction. How can this be? Zechariah was asking for confirmation. How can I be sure? When you feel like you aren't enough, it's okay to ask God for direction. But stop asking God to confirm that this is your assignment. What the angel told. Oh, man. Oh, this, I, wow. This is breathtakingly demonic. 
it is so far off base. Taking a text that is clearly about Christ and making it about you. Unbelievable. I mean, I don't need to go on. You get the flavor of how that sermon goes. And the rest of it is just that jaw-droppingly bad. And that's what happens when you think the Bible is about you rather than about Christ. And Christ himself makes it clear that Scripture is about him, especially the texts that say they're about him. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're heading to Elevate Life Church in the Cathedral of Frisco as we hear the first sermon in the Staycation Sermon Series taught by... Joshua Kraft. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. If you can even call this thing a sermon. 
from one of the premier mega churches in the United States, the Cathedral of Frisco Elevate Life Church. And it's just abject nonsense. Well, let's do this right. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's message, I can't even call it a sermon, comes to us via Elevate Life Church, Cathedral of Frisco, Frisco, Texas. The son of Keith Kraft presiding, Joshua Kraft is his name. And of course, I just have to ask the question, since when did just being the son of a pastor qualify somebody to be a pastor and deliver sermons. It doesn't. Scripture actually says that in order to be a pastor in Christ's church, a man needs to study and show himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, but can rightly divide the word of truth. I don't even think Josh is going to make any effort at all on this. Instead, this is really going to be an inspirational speech that looks at the biography of Walt Disney. And the sermon opens with him wearing a Walt Disney World t-shirt and Mickey Mouse ears. And you'll also hear the ending of the opening music for the sermon, which was Hakuna Matata. I'm not making that up. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here is Joshua Craft and Staycation Part 1. Here we go. Welcome to Disney World. Glad to see all of you. Hey. Hey, stand on your feet. Stand on your feet with me. We're, we're just going to do this for God. We're going to start by saying some things that God says about us. And it's okay to laugh at my hat. We're having fun at church today. Yeah, he's wearing Mickey Mouse ears. So say this with me. Say, I am who God says I am. A child of God. The righteousness of God. I am the apple of God's eye. I am God's workmanship. Created for good works. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Today I open up my mind to receive the word of God. So I can think like God. Be like God and do life the way God intended for me to live. Now put your hands up. Say it like you mean it. Come Holy Spirit. Help me elevate my thinking so I can elevate my life in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to Elevate Life Church. Welcome to Disney World. You can be seated. And uh, we just like to have fun. Church doesn't need to be boring or stoic or anything like that. So I'm wearing this hat. I'm going to wear it the whole time. I'm just kidding. not going to do that. But uh, we're at Disney World today, and uh, my wife and I, we've, we've, we're coming up on three years and three months. In three months, we'll have been married for three years. And uh, so we just, there's so much, there's so much that I feel like that I know about being married. And uh, I'm just kidding, just learning. But in the three years that we've been married, we've been to Disney World four times and been to Disneyland once. And I guess that qualifies you to preach a sermon about Walt Disney 
To say we're Disney fans uh, is a little bit of an understatement, um, but we actually got these hats. She got the bride one, and I got the groom one when we went for our honeymoon, and I've never worn it. So now I have worn it, and it's going to go back to collecting dust for a little bit. Um, but but this in this series, we're traveling all around the United States of America, and we're going to different vacation destinations, and uh, I, there's just so much that I... I personally love about Walt Disney and about Disney World. and uh, So is that St. Walt Disney now? Um, author of one of the books of the New Testament, something like that. Um, who, why are we talking about Walt Disney? Talk about that a little bit today, but first I want to give you some facts about where we are. Here at Disney World, there are 48 million people that visit Disney World every year, that averages out to 131,000. You know, I can get this information off of Wikipedia. Why would I want to hear it during a sermon at church? 131,000 unique visitors per day, 365 days a year. Disney World is the same size as San Francisco or two Manhattan, New York's. Disney World is also the United States' largest single-site employer employer with over 70,000 full-time employees at one site. Disneyland in California opened in December of 1955, and Disney World opened in 1971, and now there are 12 Disney theme parks worldwide, and as we know, all of this is built on the vision of this man named Walt Disney. Walt Disney has received or received more Academy Awards and nominations than anyone in history between 1937 and 1969. He won 22 Academy Awards and was nominated 59 times. He created a cinematic art form that we now know as the animated movie. And he invented a new kind of vacation destination known as Disneyland and Disney World. The fingerprint of Walt Disney, I believe, and all of us know who Walt Disney is, is felt uh, throughout the world. And this is the man who said, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that all of this was started by a mouse. And I think that's pretty cool. But at the same time, imagine if Walt Disney and the kingdom of God came together. And if we could take some lessons from... What? So the magic kingdom and the kingdom of God have now mashed together. Uh Uh-huh. The life of this great man who built an entertainment empire. And instead of being focused on just building whatever dream we feel like we have in our heart, we were focused on building God's dream. I love Walt Disney. I love his story. Focus on building God's dream. What does that sentence even mean? Uh, But at the end of the day, Walt Disney was just a person. He was a person with incredible dreams, incredible ability, incredible talent that left an impact on generations. And he did all of that by just focusing on entertainment. And so if, if Walt Disney can do that through the person of Mickey Mouse, then what is it that God wants to do through us as his people? First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine, the Bible says, this is what the scriptures mean. When they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So I I just want to remind you of something that you hopefully already know this morning, is that God has great things in store for you. Things that nobody's ever seen before. Things. Uh You mean like dreams for things like Walt Disney World. Yeah, that's not what uh, 1 Corinthians 2 is about. Um, Yeah, let's take a look at the context so that we get what's going on here. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God 
with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm -hmm. How much you want to bet we're not really going to hear anything super significant about Christ and him crucified for our sins from Josh Kraft today from his Walt Disney sermon. Um, So Paul says, I chose to know nothing amongst you except for Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now you look there at what's going on in First Corinthians two. First Corinthians two in the part of you know no no eye has seen, no ear has heard. This isn't talking about some dream destiny that God has, you know, is going to give you so that you can rock the world and change generations and influence people around the world. You know, kind of like the way Walt Disney, you know, came up with Mickey Mouse and Disneyland and stuff like that. That's not what's being promised here at all. And when you look at the context, it's very clear. It's talking about spiritual things, not worldly things. That's the point of the text. But um, Josh Kraft clearly has no clue what he's doing. But the only reason he's preaching is because he's the son of Keith Craft. Uh-huh. The word for this, by the way, and this is a common practice among the megachurch folks, the word for this is nepotism. That's why Josh Kraft is preaching. It's because of nepotism. He has not shown himself approved and is not qualified to be a pastor. Yeah, I'm just saying. We continue. Nobody's ever heard of before. And there's so much about this story of Walt Disney. Many of us know all of these stories that I'm going to tell today. But there's so much about this man named Walt Disney that no one had ever thought about that. No one had ever seen that before. No one had ever had ever done that before. And I believe that the dreams that God wants to dream through us are the same. That the world- Really, God wants to dream the dreams similar to Walt Disney's dreams in us. Which biblical text says that? Because uh, 1 Corinthians 2 does not say that hasn't seen a you yet the world has the world hasn't seen what you're going to do yet the world hasn't seen what the dream that God is dreaming through you that he wants to use to build his kingdom 
Uh-huh. Yeah, boy, is this narcissistic. And you'll you'll note that this sick, twisted message plays on human, sinful, narcissistic egos and builds them up rather than bring them to penance and faith in Christ. This is a totally different Christian. This isn't even Christianity. I don't know what this is. And, and I think we can be a little bit excited about what God wants to do through us because the fact that we're on the earth, the fact that God's given us the breath in our lungs means that he's got a great plan for us. And sometimes we can find ourselves in different situations. Really, the fact that we're breathing means that God has a great plan for us. Again, what text says that? In life where we feel like we're just a person and we're just this and we're just that and who am I to dream big dreams and believe big things? And when there's a God that's in heaven that believes big things about us, there's a God that created us, created us that didn't put us on the earth to just play small and go through our life and die one day. But he put us on this earth to make a lasting impact that lasts for generations. Yeah, which texts say that? I'd like to see them in context, please. I believe that if Walt Disney can do that through Mickey Mouse, that we should be able to do that in any way possible. So I want to tell you two, two quick stories or two stories about this man uh, named Walt Disney. Walt's first company. So, no, we get a verse of 1 Corinthians 2 out of context, misapplied. Uh-huh, yeah, what it means, it doesn't have anything to do with what he said it means. And now we're getting biography of Walt Disney, who is not in Scripture. And I'm pretty sure wasn't even a Christian. It's called Laughagram, and he started Laughagram in 1921, and by 1923, Laughagram was bankrupt. In 1927, he had his first hit cartoon named Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. The character was then promptly taken away from him, along with his entire staff from the studio that he worked for. We have notes. If you'd like some notes, the ushers can get those to you so you can follow along. But the first point that I want to make about Walt Disney's life is that we can't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to fail. Because in 1927, Walt Disney had what he felt like was his greatest creation up to that point taken from him by the studio that he was working, working for. But then by the end of 1928, Walt Disney had produced his first, his first Mortimer Mouse cartoon, who he wanted to name Mortimer, but his wife said that's a horrible name for a cartoon character. And they named him Mickey Mouse. He produced his first uh, Mickey Mouse cartoon by November of 1928. And as we know, the rest is history. But I think in our own life, there are times that we, they, there are times that we go through where we really do expect that we should get to a place where our life doesn't have any trouble. Where, where we'll get to a point where hopefully we're not failing as much as we used to. We're not going through as much difficulty as, as we used to. One of the most encouraging verses in the Bible is Job chapter 14, verse 1. How frail is humanity? How short is life and how full of troubles? Isn't that wonderful? Thanks, God. Great. So wonderful. I think we can just all go home after that verse. Just ponder that, think on that, and live your life. How frail am I and how full of trouble is my life? Just, just so glad. There are times where I feel like, you know, I've walked with God what I feel like is a long time. I'm getting ready to be 30, but 30 is not that old. Um, although Courtney likes to remind me how old 30 is. Uh, there are times when I feel like that, that because I have a relationship with God and because God's got a destiny for me and because God's got a plan for my life, that things should not be difficult and things should be easy. And the older I get, the easier things should become. And uh, the, the older I get, the more things become difficult in many ways it feels like. 
delicate situations that happen to me in my life. And I say, this really shouldn't be happening to me. I have a relationship with God. Like me and God are friends. And God, if you're my friend, you shouldn't be letting this kind of stuff happen to me. And all of us go through different kinds of situations where we do feel frail, like Joel, like Job describes. We do feel, feel like we're, our life is full of suffering at different, in different seasons. And we go through good times and we go through bad times. And, and Jesus says himself in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. You know, you know uh, in that verse, Jesus could have said, take heart because you have overcome the world. Take heart because we have overcome the world. But Jesus said, I have overcome the world, which means sometimes we feel like in the midst of situations that we find ourselves in, we're not overcomers. We feel like we find ourselves in the midst of failure and difficulty, whether we've created that ourselves or another person has helped to create that for us. And we miss what God wants to do in these moments of adversity because we feel like... You do understand that Christ has overcome the world for us, right? We have an expectation that I should face less adversity the more I go about life when really the opposite is true. That the adversity I face really helps me to become the person that God's called me to become. Walt Disney, the man himself, said, All the adversity I've, I've had in my life, all my troubles and obstacles have strengthened me. You may not realize it when it happens, but a kick in the teeth may be the best thing in the world for you. Well, awesome. Yeah, that's a quote from Walt Disney. Yeah, that's, I'm feeling closer to Jesus already. Oh, these are all things that are really easy. To, oh, yeah, kicking the teeth might be the best thing in the world. If you, I don't know if you've ever been kicked in the teeth. I haven't. But I don't imagine that that would be the best thing in the world for me right now. Don't imagine that I would ever get to a place where, man, I just really enjoyed that, like, that pain that I felt in that moment. But God, God wants to do something in us through things that we go through. We're gonna, our life, we live in an imperfect world. We live in an imperfect or imperfect society. We're going to deal with imperfect people a lot, including ourselves. And God wants us to be a certain kind of person. And it's not about going through certain kinds of things, but those things that are in us need to produce something great in us. That's, that's why 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says to Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, of love, and self-discipline. And a lot of times, I think we go through difficulty or we go through failure like Walt Disney experienced. Second Timothy chapter 1 is not about the failures and difficulties that Walt Disney went through. You know, context, context, context. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Mm -hmm. So that whole spirit of power thing is is about not being ashamed about the testimony of Christ and of sharing in the suffering for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. This is what Josh Kraft is doing here is just such a mess. His career, we go through these difficult times, and that develops within us a fear. So we go through a difficult time in a relationship, and we think, I can't trust women, or I can't trust men. We go through difficult times in friendships, and we just say, you know what, friendships aren't worth it. And we become afraid of finding ourselves back in the situation that we were once in. Or we become timid. We, we, we lack courage. We're, we're the kind of person that we, don't, we won't step out and we won't take a chance because the last time I took... Yeah, the t- context of Second Timothy is uh, not having courage to proclaim the gospel and Christ. Chance, this is how it worked out for me. And God working in us does not make us cowards. That's what the Bible says. God working in us does not make us people that are are lacking courage. It doesn't make us people that are afraid. You know, you shouldn't be afraid of bugs. Shouldn't be afraid of snakes. <laughs> well, it's okay to have a healthy fear. The Bible says that God's given us the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and I don't really want to do that, but you're welcome to try that if you want. <clears throat> but we shouldn't live our lives and, and be in fear of things. God, work, God working in our life, if God really does work in our life, which we believe that he does, God working in our life does not make us feel like things are going to go wrong. Does not make us feel like we're going to get hurt. And some people live their life with a constant sense of dread. That like the next tragedy is just around the corner. And the next bad thing to happen is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened. They get on a plane, which is the safest form of travel that exists in our modern society, and think that the plane's going to go down. They live their life in fear and timidity, and so they don't take chances. You know, I had a, I had a friend in high school that they were afraid to drive on the... Yeah, Second Timothy chapter 1 has nothing to do with the fear of flying either. Wouldn't drive on the highway, drive on the service road, which I think there's more wrecks on the service road than there are on the highway because there's less people paying attention. But there was so much fear and timidity to step out into the unknown that they were more willing to be in the comfortable place and in the safe place than they were to step out into a new place, in a different place. And God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I just read it to you. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can fully know the great things that God has in store for us. Well, for- Yeah, this is not about some dream destiny thingy. Man, this is just wicked. For us to do the unknown, for us to do the impossible, we have to be willing to step out into the unknown. That's not what First uh, Timothy 2 is saying. And for us to do the impossible and step out in the unknown, we got to, yeah, no. Wow. This is not Christianity. This is a totally different religion altogether. There's a movie that I loved growing up. I still love it. It's called Little Giants. And in this movie, Little Giants, this kid shows up to his first day of football practice and his whole body's covered in foam. So his arms and his legs and his torso is just wrapped in uh, what looks like uh, just total foam. And he looks at the coach and he says, my mom said, my mom told me the pads that you gave me weren't enough. And sometimes that's how we go through life. We go through life and 
we experience difficulty or we get afraid and we say, well, God, the protection you've given me or this kind of or whatever situation I find myself in where I'm at is not enough. So I need to find a safer place. I need to get to a safer place. When God says he's given us a spirit that's not of fear, that's not of timidity. Christians are not called to be a timid people. We're not called. Right. So let's apply that then logically. So when your kids are getting ready for, you know, your sons are getting ready for football practice, you tell them to just leave their protective gear on the sideline. They don't need a helmet. They don't need pads. None of that stuff. They should they should not be timid and fearful. Mm-hmm. This doesn't make any sense. Just sit back and let the world happen and let things happen and just go, well, whatever. God will do his will. Sometimes in situations, we are God's will in that situation. The fact that we're aware of it, the fact that we're in the room means that we need to not have a spirit of fear and timidity, not shrink back, not be afraid of what's going to happen, but know that God's given us a spirit of power. And Yeah, again, the context there is not being ashamed of the testimony of Christ, which includes his shameful death on the cross. It also includes his victorious resurrection from the grave. And a sound mind. So power means that we have authority. And I don't, have a, I don't have authority that's based on who I am. Because at the end of the day, I'm just me. I'm just a person. I'm going to live and I'm going to die one day. But there's a spirit of God that dwells within me. That when I walk into the room, it's not just me, Josh Kraft, entering the room. But it's the spirit of God that enters that place. And I believe that God's spirit lives within me. So when I walk into a situation, when I walk into a room, there's authority that comes with that because of who God is in me. And I have to choose to recognize that. I have to choose to understand that God's given me that authority. God's given me that power. Love in that passage of scripture means that we can endure any opposition because of the spirit of God that lives inside of us. You know, one of the great things about Disney World is they have unbelievable customer service, regardless of how you treat them. Regardless of how rude you are, or how mean you are, or how difficult you are as a customer, Disney, Disney will do above, above and beyond their very best to make sure that you have a great experience. Most of the places that we go to will give us a great experience if we're a great customer. If we're a bad customer, then they'll treat us like a bad customer. In life, that's the way that we live life. The way that we deal with people is I'll love you if you love me back. I'll treat you right if you treat me, treat me right back. Um, I've had different times in my life. One time in particular, I feel like God's really called me personally to be a generous person with the people that I'm in relationship with. And so, so I, 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 I'm like, I'm down for that as long as someone's nice to me or as long as they're generous back to me. Now, if someone gets stingy with me, then, you know, maybe I'll just be stingy with you and show you how it feels. <laughs> so one time I'm talking to my dad about a situation that I, I found myself in where I'm like, I'm not going to do nice stuff for them anymore. I'm not, I'm going to quit trying. I'm going to quit, you know, all this kind of stuff and just let them see what it's like. I don't know about you, if you've ever had moments like that, but this is a moment like that for me. Like, I'm going to stop being my best for you so that you can see what it's like for you to be that way and what, how the world's going to work out for you. So my dad says to me, he says, do you believe that you have a fingerprint that no one else has to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave? Now, if you haven't been around our church that long, this is one of the core statements about our church is that we have a fingerprint that no one else has to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave. And of course, my dad is going to ask me that question. And he, I said, well, of course, what am I going to say? Am I going to say no? No, I don't, dad. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. I just want to tell you my story and you agree with what I feel like I want to do that I know I shouldn't be doing, but we'll go down this road. <clears throat> so my dad asked me that question. I said, yes, I feel that way. 
And he said, do you feel like there's ever going to be a time in your life where you get to change your fingerprint? Where you get to say, no, I'm not going to have that fingerprint anymore. Do you, do you feel like there's ever going to be a time in your life where you get to say, no, that's not who I am. That's not, I'm not going to be the best version of myself. I'm not going to be this. I'm not going to be that. And so many people go through life and they think that the fingerprint that God has given them is a conditional thing based on the way that they go through life. So they say, I'll love the lovers and I'll hate the haters. And what the Bible says is that we should have a spirit of love. As God's people, the Bible's filled with, with the New Testament especially. The, the New Testament says that we, they'll know we we're Christians by our love. So when the Bible says that God's given us a, a, a spirit of love, it's not, it's not just about love. It's about understanding that you have a fingerprint that nobody else has to leave an imprint that nobody else can leave on the world. And that's not contingent on the situation you find yourself in. But it's contingent upon you understanding who God's called you to be, and you be. Yeah, no, uh, they'll know we are Christians by our love means how we love each other. It's not talking about our dream destiny thingy and how we're achieving it. Wow, this is so miserably off. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing in this sermon that's Christian or biblical that no matter what room you find yourself in. And then my favorite part, God's given us a spirit of self-discipline. <laughs> self-discipline means that even when I don't feel like it, I can control myself. Like I don't have to eat like 12 cookies in one sitting. <laughs> I, I, I don't have to act that way. I don't have to be that way just because someone else is that way towards me. You know, what we say is that a lot of people, most of us can't control in life what happens to us, but we do get to choose our response to the situation. So if God's working in my life, then I have to understand whether I want to realize it or not. God's given me a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. So in any situation I find myself in, I have authority. And if any, if any, in any situation I find myself in, I have the power to oppose any, any wrong force with the best part of me. In any situation I find myself in, I have the power to choose who I'm going to be and what I'm going to do in the midst of that situation. Not be afraid of failure, not be afraid of difficulty, not be timid and shirt back and not be the best version of myself, but be everything that God's called me to be, not because of who I am, but because of what God's spirit is doing within my life. So in the spring of 1934, Walt Disney was more successful than ever. And now we get another Walt Disney story. Yeah, that's going to help me really in my Christian sanctification like you wouldn't believe. With Mickey, Minnie, and the gang. But he decided to bet his studio on an idea that everyone around him told him was crazy. He was going to produce a full-length animated film, Snow White. Walt's wife, Lillian, said, everything is going well. Why risk everything on a movie that could ruin us? Walt's brother Roy said, do you have any idea how much this would cost? Walt figured that it would cost around $250,000. Roy, knowing his brother to be over-optimistic, doubled his estimate. Walt's wife and brother both tried to help him understand that this would never work. But work began anyway on Snow White. As word began to get out about Walt Disney's feature-length cartoon... Hollywood reporters and executives labeled it Disney's folly, and many predicted financial ruin for Disney if Snow White failed. Disney was finished if it did. By the summer of 1937, the budget had been raised six times. Walt and Roy had sold everything that they could convert to cash, and the budget for Snow White was now $1.5 million, making it the most expensive movie ever made at that time. 
Disney finished the movie just days before the premiere on December 21st, 1937. And it went on to earn more than $8 million in its first year. Over $145 million in today's money at that time. Am I supposed to say amen to this? Most successful movie in history. Walt was honored at the Academy Awards with a special award recognizing Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs with one regular size Oscar and seven smaller ones. And they'll show you a picture of it. Did they already put it up there? That the seven smaller ones. There's a, you'll see it. There it is. <clears throat> one of the reasons Walt Disney succeeded was his courage. His father told him that he would never make a living making cartoons. The industry told him that Snow White would fail because no one would want to watch it. Walt failed early in his career. And it taught him that you are still alive even after you fail. In fact, you can still be successful after you fail. Walt didn't become reckless, he just became courageous. In his mind, there wasn't much chance for failure because he didn't shoot from the hip. Everything that he did was planned and organized to the smallest detail to be the, to be the best it could possibly be. He planned to succeed, but at the same time, he dared greatly. You know, the thing is, like, even if we fail, even if we make mistakes, even if things don't go perfect, we're still alive. God's still got a plan for our life. As long as, as, long as there's breath in our lungs, God wants to do great things through us. And some- Yeah, God has not created you with a dream, destiny, or a purpose. Nope. Yeah, tune in Friday. Yeah, the second half of the program will be dedicated to that. We feel like that the failure that we go through, or if we go through a difficult time, or if something bad happens to us, that that's all over. The stories come to an end. And as long as there's breath in our lungs, there's still more story to tell. There's still more that can happen. It doesn't matter what kind of failures we've gone through in our past. It doesn't matter what kind of difficulties we've experienced. Sometimes that kick in the teeth is just the best thing that's ever happened to us because it helps us for next time. So Walt Disney realized in the, in, in the context of his life that, yeah, Laugh-A-Gram failed. Yeah, his dad, was a, his dad was a failed entrepreneur that never had a business succeed his entire life. Yeah, this sermon's a total failure to be Christian or biblical. Yeah, his wife said it wasn't going to work. Yeah, his brother, who was his best friend, said it wasn't going to work. But there was just something in Walt Disney that said, you know what, I failed and I can fail again and I'm still going to be alive. And there's still going to be more chances to succeed. Walt Disney said himself that one thing it takes to accomplish something is courage. So notice, this is actually a motivational speech. It's not a Christian sermon. It's not teaching Christian doctrine. This is just to pep you up. What more does God want us to dare and to believe for big things? Remember that this is just about Walt Disney making a movie. And it's cool. He got a cool Academy Award out of the deal and all of that. But if Walt Disney can believe that Snow White can succeed, can we believe that God's for us? Can we believe that God wants us to succeed? Can we believe that God's got a great plan for our life? Can we believe that the spirit of God lives within us and we're not supposed to have a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind? Walt Disney did all this for the sake of entertainment. He took these big risks and these major chances and planned everything and spent his life building this amazing Walt Disney entertainment empire, which is super cool. But how much more does God want to do through us? And sometimes we have, we have God's spirit that's in us, but we're the most timid and fearful people. We're the most timid and fearful people, and we hold back the most. We're God's people. We're supposed to be the most courageous. Yeah. Did uh, Walt Disney proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins? Did he believe that? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't seem to recall that he did. We're supposed to be the most on top of it because we're not, we don't feel like we're doing life alone. We got God that's walking with us. He's on the journey with us. He's helping us to tell our story, and he knows what it is that... He's helping us to tell our story. Nope. Um, wow. Uh, Christians are supposed to tell Jesus' story. Mm-hmm. You got this backwards, Josh. He wants to do through us. And so often that fear of failure, that fear of things not working out is what is what holds us back. When God says himself, I haven't given you a spirit of fear. I haven't given you a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. So you just be who I've called you to be and let me worry about everything else. The second thing. Walt Disney reminds me a lot of my dad. He came up with words. So have stick to itivity. We have to have stick to itivity. One of Walt Disney's strongest traits was the thing that he called stick to itivity. Once he committed, an, once he committed to an idea, there was no stopping him. You know, in whatever way, I had to learn this lesson this year. Um, Notice we're not learning anything, and I mean this, anything about Jesus. Nope, we're learning a lot about Walt Disney. This this past time that we went to Walt Disney, they have these these um, fun runs. I don't know how those two words will ever connect with each other. But they do half marathons at Disney, and thousands of people show up to do them. And uh, I guess they just really like being tortured. I don't know. So Courtney says uh, to me, she loves running, and she loves these, these Disney run things are just really fun for her. This is Courtney running in uh, the Disney half marathon. And she just, like, that's just her. just photogenic and just happy and enjoying it, 13 miles. And then there's a picture of me uh, running. Uh, <laughs> So this year we go and we're going to go run this half marathon together and it's 13 miles, which is like the most impossible thing I could imagine. Um, I th- this did not happen because I run the way I look. It didn't happen because I'm a runner. Okay. So, so she goes, I want to, you know, I want to, I want to go run this half marathon together. I want to go to Disney world and I want to run this half marathon. And this was the only time. And I told her this is the only time I'm going to say this in the context of our marriage, but whatever this is, I'm doing this hundred percent for you. None of this is for me. Like, if you want to torture me to death, you say, Josh, we're going to run. So we have six months to train for this marathon. And, of course, I started running about two weeks before. And the most that I'd run, the mo- so about a week before we, we left, this is me. Like, I'm trying to be funny or, like, I'm not thinking that I look like I'm in that much agony. But this is, like, this is at the finish line. People got So we're learning a lot about. Josh Kraft. We're learning about a lot about Walt Disney. We're learning zip about Jesus. Wow. Unbelievable that this place thinks it's Christian. God, you know. <laughs> so the most I'd run, I, a week before, I ran my furthest distance I've ever run. Four miles. <laughs> I was like, four miles, 13, same thing, right? Totally. Miles a mile. 13 of them, 26 of them, who cares? If you can run four, you can run 13. That's not true. I don't recommend, I don't recommend the Josh Kraft half marathon training program. It did not work for me. So, so we go, we, we're going to run this marathon. And the day we wake up, Courtney's four, Courtney's four months pregnant at this point, And so she feels like she can still run. But 
But she wakes up and she's just like really sick that morning. By the way, you got to wake up at 3 a.m. to go run this half marathon, which like it's bad enough. Why? Why do I? I I go to bed at 2 a.m. and then I wake up at 3 and this has just set me up for a great week here at Disney World. So we wake up at 3 a.m. And I, no, you don't have to wake up at 3. You have to get on the bus at 3. So that means 2.30. So wake up, wake up. and just getting ready. And Courtney's like, I feel so sick. I don't think I can do it. And she's sad. She's sad about not being able to run. And I'm like, if I was sick, I would just be like, ah, you know. Oh, I'm so sick. Oh, it's too bad. Like I was hoping... I was hoping that it was going to rain and they were just all going to give everybody medals. And then y'all don't have to run. Good job. Way to sign up. Okay. That didn't happen. So I said, okay, I'm going to run it. And I I committed to it. And, uh, you know, the great thing is some of our best friends were there with us. And so it was only the second worst day of my life. Whereas if I would have been doing it by myself, it would have been the worst day of my life. And you just have to excuse me. This running thing is for real for me. So uh, I, I went and I did it, gave him my very best, average 15-minute miles. So that's not, that's not good. If you, if you don't run, that's not a good time. If you're averaging 15-minute miles, you're not running. So when I say I ran a marathon. Yeah, 15-minute miles, you're pretty much walking. So when I say I ran a marathon, I walked a marathon. Courtney was looking at my times and she said, one of those is like 19 minutes where you guys... What's what happened? Anyway, I'm on this, I'm on this marathon. And again, I get to my max, I get to my max moment four miles in. I'm like, wow. Okay. Four miles. That's a lot. Been running for a while or walking, excuse me, walking for a while. We have nine more miles of this. This is my life now. This is, I'm the, all I know is walking and running and jogging and my knee hurting and my ankles hurting and my back's kind of starting to hurt a little bit and Disney World should not be this painful for me and as far as I can see in front of me there's thousands of people and as far as I can see behind me there's there's thousands of people but I got to the finish line I made it and I carried and I carried Courtney's bib the whole time and was able to get her medal for her, which like cool husband points for me thank you um But I really, I really, I really, I really thought to myself, this is not going to be that hard. It's just, you know, so many people do it. So many people, so many people do this kind of stuff and it's, it's going to be just, this going to be nothing. When did it? It was not nothing. It was something. And, uh, that was the one time we documented it. We took pictures and I'm never doing it again. <laughs> but in that moment, I know that's a funny story, but I really had to, I really had to stick to it. I, I really don't know if I would have done it if, uh, if our friends w- weren't there. But Walt Disney was the epitome of this, of this stick to ativity. So he gets to a place in the 50s where he once again leverages everything that he owns to be able to live his dream. He borrowed $100,000 against his life insurance policy, sold any property that he owned, and even began to ask the employees at the Disney offices for money. Guess what the press began again to describe as Disney's folly? Disneyland. One day, Walt drove one of his best friends, Art Linklater, out to the 160 acres of orange groves that he had purchased, and this was Art's response. We drove and drove to this remote spot in Orange County. I looked around, and I couldn't believe it. We were miles from any population center, and I wondered if Walt had lost his mind. I thought, my gosh, he wants to put a bunch of roller coasters out in the middle of these orange groves. This is ridiculous. During the tour of the orange groves, Walt said to his friend Art, 
you've got to get in on this. Just buy up property around the park, and in a year or two, you can sell it to developers, and you'll make a fortune. He couldn't see what Walt saw, and so he never bought land. Art Linkletter once did the math on how much money he could have made with Walt, and according to his calculations, each step he took that day was worth about $3 million. Walt hired all the experts that he could to build Disneyland. But even with that, the construction costs went from a projected $6 million to over $17 million. And Walt himself ended up saying that financing Disneyland, which seemed impossible at the time, was a piece of cake compared to actually building it. Walt's brother Roy said, I'm afraid if I'd been running this place, we would have stopped several times because of the problems. Walt has the stick to On opening day, July 17, 1955, the park flooded with 28,000 people, almost triple what Disneyland had prepared for. And over 90 million people, the largest live broadcast audience in television history, tuned in on ABC to watch the opening. Opening day at Disneyland quickly became known as Black Sunday. The park was only stocked with enough food and drink for 11,000 people maximum. The Disneyland restaurants ran out of food before lunch. Traffic to get in the park stretched seven miles. Lines were long. The rides broke down because the ride operators tried to shorten the lines by overloading the rides. There was not enough trash cans to contain the amount of trash being generated by 28,000 people. The temperature topped 100 degrees and the freshly laid asphalt in the park soon began to resemble hot fudge. People were walking right out of their shoes. The news media savaged the opening day. They called it the $17 million people trap that Mickey Mouse built. Most bet on an early demise. However, on September 8th, they welcomed their one millionth visitor. After Black Sunday, Walt went to work making every change that needed to be made in the park. And now we look at Disneyland and we say, of course. But in 1955, Disneyland was the greatest gamble in the history of American business. The risk paid off, not because Walt was lucky, but because he wouldn't quit. This same mentality is what built Walt Disney World in 1971, five years after Walt Disney died. Just a reminder, this is supposed to be a sermon. Another way of saying stick to is saying to be faithful. You know, Hebrews chapter 11 says, Faith shows us the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence about what we can't see. Through their faith. Yeah, totally out of context. Man, is faith in you know, being able to take a gamble and do something like make Disneyland. Yeah, how many people do stuff like that? And that's not what Hebrews 11 is about. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Certainty of things that we do not see. Uh-huh. It's And what is it that we're hoping for? A, a big business gamble to pay off? Or eternal life and the forgiveness of our sins? People of old earned a good reputation. Then this, then this verse 3 is like the most powerful verse as it relates to today. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So what we see now all around us, the world that we have, the 
the, the, the kind of life that we live, that was not existent until God spoke it into existence. So faith, we talked about this last week, but faith is our action that's based on our belief. So what's faithfulness? To be faithful means to live a life characterized by what we believe, not what we see. See, Walt Disney was able to walk around 160... Yeah, but it's clear you're not believing in repentance and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You're believing that the scriptures teach that somehow we're going to get, you know, that God wants us to gamble everything on a business deal. ...of orange groves in California and say, I see this, and I see this castle, and I see frontier land, and I see adventure land, and I see tomorrow land. He was able to buy up a bunch of swamp in Orlando that people thought was good for nothing and build a 48, uh, a, a place that 48 million people a year now go to. No one had ever visited theme parks like this before in history. No one had ever built something that people traveled from all over the world and miles and miles just to come ride some rides and eat some overpriced. Yeah, I'm sorry, but the story of Walt Disney is not a story of Christian sanctification. Food. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. This is one of like the key verses in the entire Bible for me. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. You see what we're trying to figure out? All of us, I think, at some point in our life, we're trying to figure out how to be successful. We're trying to figure out how to set ourselves up for success, how to take advantage of the next opportunity, how to do this, how to do that. And Walt Disney was, um, we don't really know what Walt Disney's relationship with God was like. Walt Disney was faithful to his dream, and he made it happen, and he had stick to itivity. Uh-huh. Faithful to his dream. Mm-hmm. But not Jesus Christ in the gospel. But imagine what being faithful to God is like, how much God puts his hand on us. Walt Disney Imagine, right, yeah. Why don't you just preach a text? Great man, and he was a great entertainer, and he had great faith in himself, and all those things are really cool. But how- Yeah, great faith in himself. What more does God want for us when we place our faith in him? We decide- Faith in him for what? A dream destiny? Become faithful. One of the most difficult things for us to be is consistent. One of the most difficult things for us to be is just faithful people, that even when things look like they're not working out, even when things are difficult, even when we deal with feelings of, of, of failure, even when we deal with feelings of timidity, we just go, you know what? I'm going to keep showing up. I'm going to keep believing. I'm going to keep acting based on my belief. Because most people, when they go through hard times, they quit. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 17, he tells his disciples, he says, you don't have enough faith. I tell you, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you, you could say... Faith for what? A dream destiny or the forgiveness of my sins? This mountain moved from here to there and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. That, that verse doesn't mean anything else except for what it says. Jesus wasn't trying to be figurative. He wasn't trying to use flowery, flowery language. He said, if you really have that kind of faith, you could say to a mountain, be moved from here to there, and the mountain would move because your faith moves things. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus looks at, at them intent, intently. Every verse, out of context, strung together as if they're commenting on themselves and they're not. And he says, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Yeah, that's possibility thinking. Do you think Jesus is a big advocate of possibility thinking? 
Far from it. This is such a mess. These are really great verses, and wow, how, how cool is that that God's like that? But do we really believe that with the way that we live? Yeah, are you risking it all like Walt Disney did? If not, I mean, you really don't have faith, and you're not thinking that all things are possible with God. So go and risk it all for Jesus because of you believe you have a dream destiny. More faithful if we did. We, we would be more on top of it. We would show up more. We would be a lot more consistent if we really did believe that, that with God, everything is possible. But sometimes we go through difficulty and we go through hard times. And there's so many people in the world that when things get hard, they see resistance as a sign to not continue. So, wow, that got really difficult for me. Well, that, you know, that must not be God in that situation because God's supposed to make everything. And that literally was the end of the sermon. Yeah. So there you go. I, you, <laughs> that's where the video cut off. It's, I didn't do that. They did. So, uh, yeah, uh, Mickey Mouse sermon, all about Walt Disney. Learn nothing about Jesus in context, really nothing about what Christian sanctification is. If anything, uh, the people there were guilted. If they're not risking everything like Walt did, you know, uh, because, you know, of some vision they have for their life or whatever, you know, uh, then they don't really even have faith. And, and they're not believing God for the impossible kind of stuff, right? Yeah. But those are not the promises that were given in Scripture. No, our faith is in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Christ in this life has told us that we should expect suffering and persecution. Uh-huh. Just saying. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions... Of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>